If we keep going on collectively around the world like this, by 2100, we will get a societal ecological collapse unless we do something different. If we're going to meaningfully decarbonise the global level, we've got to start that process of re-imagining uh, our politics. The scale of the problem that we're looking at um, it, is, it is not possible to solve it by individual action alone. We need nationwide action, we need global action. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Welcome everyone. We're here for what I think will be a really excellent and stimulating discussion this evening, and I'll get into why we're having that discussion and uh, the fantastic panel, extensive panel that I've got with me to um, go through a few of our points. But first, I just wanted to note that uh, this particular event is coming to you from the Sydney Environmental Inst Environment Institute and also the Sydney Business School, particularly the discipline of strategy, innovation and entrepreneurship research, which I'm not as familiar with. But what I wanted to say was that at the Sydney Environment Institute, obviously a big focus of the work is changing dominant imaginaries, which is changing the way that we imagine the system that we're in now and in the future. And I think the conversation we're going to have today is really going to dig into some of our dominant imaginaries, to call them that, and talk about how we might change them and modify them over time. So I will firstly acknowledge um, the traditional custodians of the country that we're meeting on. So we're, of course, on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation. And I will pay my respects to elders past and present and note the long history, obviously, that that community have of managing the land sustainably, which we benefit from. And I also would note that, and I just learned this, the season that we're in, of the, the local season, is Nugunungi, and I'm sorry I'm mispronouncing that, but it's the season when the flying fox appear. So there's a fantastic website that I discovered today, a friend of mine pointed me to it, which is the BOM um, Indigenous, Indigenous Weather Calendar website, which talks about the weather seasons of the Indigenous people in different parts of Australia, and it's super interesting, so go check it out. Anyway, so tonight we are here to talk about a book that three of our speakers have brought together, which is titled Organising Responses to Climate Change, The Politics of Mitigation, Adaptation and Suffering. It's an optimistic title. <laughs> but we wouldn't be here if we weren't ready to talk about some of the uh, more difficult parts of the discussion, so I'm sure you're all ready for it. Um, Professor Chris Wright, Professor Daniel Nyberg and Dr Vanessa Bowden have been, um, are the authors of this excellent title. And, in fact, you can buy a copy tonight, I'm told. There's a QR code and you get 30% off. So um, it's an exciting read. Get in there. But let me introduce our speakers a little bit, and I'm definitely reading here because there's A, quite a lot in these buyers, and also I think they've probably been quite carefully crafted to encompass people's expertise. So excuse me while I continue to read off the page, and then we can get a little bit less um, uh, paper-driven as we go through. So Chris Wright is Professor of Organisational Studies at the University of Sydney Business School. So he teaches and researches on organisational change, sustainability and climate change. For over 15 years, he's developed research collaborations with leading international climate scientists and global environmental organisations. You can tell there's a lot more to that bio, as there is with many of these, and I will move on. <laughs> Daniel Nyberg is a Professor of Management at the University of Newcastle Business School, 
where he researches responses to climate change in projects exploring the transition to a low carbon economy, the politics of adaptation, and how corporate political activities influence public policy. He's surprised about this as well. We're both learning things. Um, Dr. Vanessa, that's me. Dr. Vanessa Bowden is a lecturer in sociology at the University of Newcastle. Her research explores the social constructions of environmental knowledge, specifically looking at climate adaptation in local communities and the politics of energy transitions. Greg Bourne, this is a lot packed into one paragraph, um, is a counsellor at the Climate Council and has worked at the nexus of climate change, energy and business and policy for over 30 years. His career has been diverse and has included working at BP at the climate change, on the climate change agenda, working as a special advisor on energy and transport to the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, and as CEO of WF Australia for six years. There's a bit more in that. That's enough. Yeah, that's enough. <laughs> um, and finally, Kate Smolsky is a program director at Greenpeace Australia Pacific and she has been an environmental advocate for nearly 20 years between Australia and the United States, and she's fought for the protection of nature and action on climate change as a grassroots organiser, campaigner, and organisational leader. So we've got a lot of people who are very well qualified to talk about the politics of mitigation, adaptation, and suffering. So let's get on with it. What we're gonna do in this discussion is we're actually gonna talk about three central conceits or imaginaries that are part of our discussion on climate change day-to-day, uh, -day, particularly now that it's moved very much into the conversation about finance and economics. And we're going, I'm going to ask the panel to unpack some of those. And particularly, I'm going to ask them, why do people believe this? Where do we see this belief in action? Why is it wrong or flawed or insufficiently nuanced? And what is at risk if we don't question these beliefs collectively? Now, the conceits that we're going to work through are three. So the first is that we can solve the problem, climate change, with capitalist governance alone. We don't need to use non-capitalist systems. We can do it all within commerce. That's one of the first conceits that we hear often. Conceit number two is that we can solve the problem without changing our ambition for growth. That's a, that old chestnut. Um, <laughs> And conceit number three is that we can be strong or rich enough to be exempted from being vulnerable to climate change. That's something that sits under, underneath a lot of our discussions and we, we'll, we'll unpack that one last. All right. Without further ado, let's start with our first conceit, which is that we can solve the problem with existing capital, capitalist governance norms alone. We don't need other actors. And Chris, I'm going to come to you first to, uh, this is what happens when you've got business school yeah. written no pressure. next. No pressure at all. Um, but let, let's kick off. Why is this a thing people believe? Where do we see it in action? What's wrong or flawed about it? What's at risk? Okay, so there's a lot in that. Um, I think the, the, the sort of understanding the origins of that imaginary and how it came into being is kind of helpful in understanding why it is so powerful now. Uh, and if we think about when climate change appeared on the political radar, although the scientific awareness of it goes back centuries, the greenhouse effect. Um, politically, it emerged in the late 1980s. Uh, we look at examples like James Hansen, US climate scientist, uh, and his testimony before the, the US um, Congress, I think it was. And he said, yep, climate change is us, it's bad, and we need to do something about it. Uh, and at the same time, really, that that political awareness was happening, and people like Margaret Thatcher in the UK were saying, yeah, climate change is a real thing, we should do something. 
Uh, at that same time, of course, ascendant was this whole ideology of neoliberalism, uh, which has become dominant in the thinking of pretty well every government around the world, that the answer to any social environmental problem is let market forces rip, let corporations rip, get government out of the equation. Government is the problem, as Ronald Reagan famously phrased it. Um, and so people like Naomi Klein have made the point, really unfortunate timing, that we became politically aware of the climate crisis at the exact same time that the dominant political response is to remove government, the state, regulation from the equation. And really that hasn't changed uh, in the subsequent 40, 50 years. That belief system is still dominant. And if you look at when um, Nicholas Stern in the UK 2006 wrote that report, he framed climate change as the greatest market failure that the world had seen. So it's framed as a market failure. And so the response is very much about a market response. Mm. And we'll put a price on carbon in some form, a tradable commodity, and things will be fixed. And we'll bring the externality into economic um, calculations. Uh, but that's what's wrong with it. Well, it's clearly insufficient for the response that we need. If we look at where atmospheric carbon emissions are going, if we look at where greenhouse gas emissions are going, they're all going up. Um, the only time uh, human greenhouse gas emissions have at least plateaued have been in periods of really major economic recession, like the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the COVID pandemic, uh, I can think of others. Uh, and every time there's a little bit of a plateau when there's a massive contraction of economic activity. But as soon as economic activity comes back, and we've seen this post-COVID, emissions track back up again. And then if we look at atmospheric carbon, well, that hasn't really altered a whole lot. That's just pretty steady at a 45 degree angle. So what we need to do is to basically reinvent the entire global economy uh, at a very fundamental level and decarbonize it. Um, and that really isn't on the agenda of a sort of a market response. Greg, I'm going to come to you. You've had experience on both sides of this yep. conversation. What, what would be your, I mean, we've heard a little bit about um, where this is, where, where this belief's come about um, and a little bit about why it's so sticky. Like, can I hear from you a little bit, you know, you might want to comment on that, but I can, can I hear from you also on, you know, where do we see this in action and what's at risk if we don't change it? Um, I'll certainly come to that last mm -hmm. bit in a couple of the other answers. But the, the first one I wanted to look at was, was you know, our capitalist system more than anything else. And I recall talking to a senator, an Australian senator, a few years ago and saying to him that, you know, China will move faster by far on renewables than Australia will. And he, his immediate response was, oh, so you're suggesting that communism is better than capitalism. And I said, no, that's not the case. But what we see in our capitalist system is we see um, governments and businesses working together, together, together to hold the status quo. And the status quo delivers the maximum dividend at that moment in time to a particular company and via taxes you know, to a particular government. So the status quo stays. And so when you look at industry associations, particularly industry associations, they, I was described, they go at the pace of the slowest, the stand of the lowest, to the cost of the biggest funder, and usually to the ego of the executive director, but really the lowest bar you can possibly imagine. The game is limbo, it's not high jump. Yeah. The, the other thing I wanted to, to, to say was, if you then look at some of the messages that are coming out, and, and particularly from Antonio Guterres, as he was launching Working Group 3, and, and I'm gonna read what he was saying, he was saying, the report is a, is a litany of broken climate promises, a file of shame cataloging the empty pledges that put us firmly on the track to climate disaster. And then he says, some governments and business leaders are saying one thing, but doing another. Simply, they are lying. 
Now, for the United Nations Secretary General to say, you are lying, you are lying, you are lying, is something powerful. We'll hear more from him either in December or February when the final report actually, actually comes out. But I want to flip into one of the positives and just show, just go back 60 years. And part of this you will know, and the second part I'll guarantee you won't. So the first bit, I'm just going to read a sentence. First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. Do you know who said it? I'm sure you do, John F. Kennedy. But he goes on and he says, this decision demands a major national commitment of scientific and technical manpower, material and facilities, and the possibility of their diversion from other important activities where they are already thinly spread. It means a degree of dedication, organization, and discipline which have not always characterized our research and development efforts. And the speech goes on. But to me, the market will not deliver, but leadership can stimulate the market. And that leadership message is one of the most key things that comes through, and one of the things that we are seeing missing around the world. Maybe it's changing a bit here in Australia, but we want to see a bit more. Well, if that's the way you feel about the United States R&D <laughs> exercise, I worry about our prospects anyway. Um, I'm going to come to you, Kate, because we've talked a lot about neoliberalism. We've talked a lot about corporate capture or the like, and um, this this sort of long-running view that we sort of needed to get corporates out of the space and or we need to get government out of the space and just let corporate get on with it. You've worked with government and corporate and faced into government and corporate quite extensively. What would your reflections on this kind of very strong and durable conceit be? Hmm. Well, one of the concepts that I've used often when working with different activists to have a sort of balanced society, you would have the Venn diagram of civil society, corporates, business, and government. And if they have sort of equal power, then you have a more balanced society where people are looked after, you do have a, a sustainable economic growth, um, and there's oversight to keep people within, within checks and balances. Clearly what we're seeing today, um, at least from our perspective at, at Greenpeace, is a very much outweighed uh, portion of uh, decision-making and power in the system with the corporations. And that's because of the, the capitalist system that we are in. Um, and, but just to take it a step further, when we're talking about the issue of climate change, uh, there's sort of a raging debate between, you know, can we possibly solve climate change um, within the capitalist system or do we need to just get on with it and solve it within the system? I think given the time that we have left to solve the issue of climate change, from our perspective, is no longer an either or. Um, you know, we don't actually have a position at Greenpeace about whether or not we should be in a capitalistic society or not. We think there is a very unbalanced system and that corporations have used their power. Um, we've talked about corporate capture. We've talked about, I think the book refers to it as the natural order. At Greenpeace, we call it the fossil fuel order because not only have corporations have an outweighed amount of power with decision makers, they've used that power to hold back the important transition that we've needed, that we could have started decades ago that would have put us on an, an easier trajectory. And you know, ExxonMobil is like the poster child for how this has happened. You can check out Exxon Secrets if anyone's interested in more details. And so, you know, they, they've allowed for 
the average person to think that climate change is their responsibility to deal with by using keep cups and you know switching their electricity providers etc and skirting their responsibility as that very important sector of society i'm mostly talking now about the fossil fuel majors but there's others as well and so unfortunately because of that system um, because of those decades that we've lost when we would have had the opportunity to to better solve the problem over time um, we are now in a situation where it is critically important that we have oversight from governments setting very strong policies, whether they are um, communist governments, socialist governments, capitalist governments, and the corporate sector doing more than their fair share to take us where we need to based on what the science is telling us. Uh, I, I, I should have known better than to get you guys to talk about problems and solutions separately. But we'll, <laughs> come, we'll come back to that a little bit more. I, I want to move on to our next one. But before I do, Vanessa, this is a very... Um, durable, constructed narrative, you know, that we're, that we're talking about oh, yeah. around, <laughs> around all of this. Do you have any, I'm just interested from your direction of study, do you have any reflections on it? And it's changing, right? We, if we were to have this conversation 10 years ago, we would say neoliberalism would always mm. be more ascendant than it is now. Is that, is that accurate? Is that not accurate? Are we seeing a movement? Is full-purpose capitalism a real thing or is it a well, diversion? I, I mean, I think... We just have to look at the budget today and a lot of the main climate change policies to come out are like, or, or and with money attached to them, is slowing down Morrison's financing of carbon capture and storage, um, returning some authority to the climate change authority, giving them some more money, giving um, Treasury more money to be able to... Um, model the risks and opportunities of climate change like this stuff is has gone back and forward for decades anyone who's been following it knows so I mean as far as I'm concerned I think you know the capitalist governance has had its turn yeah and, it, and it's failed us yeah we're gonna I promise we're gonna talk about solutions at the end of this it's not just gonna be <laughs> us being like it's terrible for the whole thing but while we're on it's terrible I want to come to growth so, um, Daniel, I'm going to start with you here. We can solve the problem without changing our ambition for growth. There's been a lot of ink spilled on this particular topic. Where is this coming from? Where do we see it in action? What's at risk if we don't change it? Yeah, no, previous speakers have mentioned this nexus of capitalist organisation and government. And I think Chris mentioned this, you know, the, the tight coupling of economic growth and carbon emissions. So we've only seen dips when there's been economic downturns. And most uh, economies in the world experienced that during COVID. And the solution in most of these countries was growth. Mm. So the, the solution to uh, economic downturn is obviously growth. And that, with that comes carbon emissions. Um, and in Australia, we even had a gas-led recovery uh, with, with gas executives deciding what to do with, 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 the, with the problem of, of economic downturn of COVID. So you can see this coupling in Australia and many other uh, countries between fossil fuel and, and governments. But in, overall, globally, this coupling is tied between growth and carbon emissions. So the problem is then whether we can decouple this. And this is obviously what capitalist organization is suggesting, that we can't decouple this. Mm. But if you look at the evidence today, that is no decoupling at all. Rather, any renewable that we use is sitting on top of 
fossil fuel. There's no replacement at all. So we're just adding renewable to the energy mix. We're not replacing it. So there's no decoupling there. Uh, so then the next question is, okay, if it's not possible to decouple, what can we do? And I guess we come into that discussion later in terms of degrowth. What sectors need to uh, disappear? What industries should we you know, uh, degrow? And, and uh, what type of organization can handle that? Obviously not a capitalist organization because the base mm -hmm. of capital is growth. Mm -hmm. So then we need alternative forms of organization to manage certain parts of society and certain industries. Uh, and we also have to start thinking about certain countries still probably need growth, especially around education and health. So while certain countries perhaps have had their share of, of, of growth, other countries are still catching up. Mm -hmm. So this is obviously a geopolitical, very sensitive uh, question. Mm -hmm. and. Part of the failure of addressing climate change is that no one is willing, of course, to tell, go back to their countries and say, as Prime Minister, look, we are going to degrow and you're going to have it worse because, you know, that country is going to have it better and it's their turn. So it's an unsellable proposition. Uh, and that's why, again, I guess we might address this later on, that we need alternative organizations that starting from the grassroots, I think, in terms of reorganizing ourselves. So not necessarily replacing capitalists, but making capitalists less necessary for our everyday life. Mm. Greg and Chris, I'm going to come to you to reflect on that from the, from the, uh, the, the, the corporate and the economic organisational perspective. But first, Kate, I want to go to you on that question about grassroots, and I don't mean to associate your history in, in the NGO space as being entirely grassroots. That's not the, that's that's not the clear association you want to make there. But... I do want to ask you about this. Um, you know, you were talking about the super majors. You were talking about the process of moving the conversation about responsibility onto the consumer. When you reflect on the growth story and also I think alternatively also on the rise of the thing like the B Corp and various other new models, do you see any, um, you know, where, where do you see this playing out and do you see any avenues where we're starting to change the growth narrative? In your work, um, I mean, I think just to, on the, the overall concept, I I think the answer is like no, we cannot see endless growth in the way that we currently have been seeing it, and still mm -hmm. solve the climate crisis and also the biodiversity crisis, which is very closely linked. And so, I think the way that I see it play out in the work that that I've done and um, the people that I've been working with is it's what kind of growth we're talking about mm -hmm. and so as i talked before the need for like the the urgency around the solutions and i know we're not talking about solutions um but the urgency in terms of timing for when we need to put the solutions in place um is you know, every year we're seeing more climate impacts where, where the science is telling us um, how urgent it is becoming every decade is the more critical decade as the IPCC reports are telling us. And so I think it's more about what kind of growth. We clearly can't see the trajectory of growth in the way that we've been seeing it, but we also do need to see quite a large escalation in growth in the solutions. Um, and so, yeah, it's the shifting of like, how do we actually make that transition in a way that takes society along with us and doesn't leave huge sectors of society behind? Um, and so it's been called many different things. Just transition is one example. And so I think the other thing that I did just want to touch on, because I, I really appreciated you talking about, you know, it's also not um, a balanced world in terms of how much growth different countries have been, you know, have had the opportunity to have. And so I think that's the other 
arm of it is for those developed countries that have had so much more opportunity to reach sort of the, the level of um, growth development in society that they have. It is their responsibility um, to make sure that other societies have the same opportunities to reach that, that level of growth and development, but done in a more sustainable way. And so, you know, loss and damage is one of the, is one of the very hot topics um, around this as to how you actually support more developing nations um, to achieve the growth that they need to, you know, reach their full potential um, and also to make sure that we they are supported in um, adaptation for climate change. And I know that we're coming to that later. Um, so I think that that is, I think I'll just end there. Okay. So Greg, I'm going to come to you and then I'll come to you, Chris. Um, you know, you, you, you have both had a lot of experience with this gross logic to the point that um, the points that have been made, you know, we are in a setting where it is pervasive and it's kind of the orientation that every, every um, organisation we work with faces into. Um, where do you, do you see any cracks in the growth narrative? So I just want to preface the first part of this, that if you think about history now, the growth narrative has been there for thousands of years, and it's usually been written as this country took over that country. It wanted more land. It wanted more slaves. It wanted more whatever. You know, and the slave trade, in a sense, was, you know, a growth play. You know, horrible though it is, it was a growth play. So that paradigm of growth has applied throughout the whole colonial era, and it's applied to all governmental types. So what I want to then get to is, in, in 1972, Limits to Growth, the book, Limits to Growth, was published. And really, for the first time, people started looking at what was the accumulative effect of what was going on? And again, sort of a stat. The year I was born, there were only 2.4 billion people on the planet. Now there's around about 8 billion people on the planet, just in my lifetime. So, you know, growth comes in all sorts of different ways. But the limits to growth was the key. And in the limits to growth book, they talked about if we keep going on collectively around the world like this, by 2100, and it was by 2100, by 2100, we will get a societal ecological collapse at some stage or other, unless we do something different. And they weren't thinking about climate change at the time, but this is what they were thinking. Um, my friend and colleague, Jürgen Randers, who was one of that, the authors, wrote a paper in uh, 2008, and it was called Global Collapse, Fact or Fiction. And what he basically said was, with the slowness of our response to climate change and the speed at which climate change is happening and the self-reinforcing mechanisms that are on and some of the tipping points that are there, we could find that we head into a global collapse, but not in the way we think. It'll probably come about via, and one of the things he said was via pandemics. Uh, we might see um, local and regional strife. We might see geopolitical strife. And sadly, what he eventually says is, and the historians, probably academics, the historians at 2100 might just write, well, it was shit governance. He actually didn't use that as a technical term, but <laughs> yeah, it was really poor governance because the mental model of people has been growth at all costs. And breaking out of that is really difficult, really, really difficult. And if you only have to think about yourself in the equation, what is it you want? Oh, the bigger house got to get the other iPad for the other child, you know, it's going to be really hard to make a change. But there are limits to growth. Chris. 
Yeah. Um, small, I guess, small set of comments to respond yeah, to. Yeah, echo, echoing Greg's point, um, do, do I see uh, cracks in the growth um, imaginary? Yes, I do, but they're coming very much from a direction we probably wouldn't want, which is you know, echo, echoing what Greg has said about limits to growth. I mean, Kenneth Boulding, American economist back in the early 70s, I think it was, to Congress, is credited with saying, you know, only a madman or economist believes infinite growth on a finite planet is possible, or words to that effect, I'm going to mangle it. Um, but, but what he was getting at, you know, this sort of assumption that the, the planetary system can take whatever we throw at it, and we can grow and consume, and, uh, and, and life will go on. Well, we're now starting to see the limits to that growth and, and the planetary boundaries are being breached. And we're seeing the extreme weather and the pandemics and the geopolitical pressures. So the cracks in the growth ideology will occur, I think, from the outside forced upon us. Uh, it's very hard politically to challenge this idea of progress, that human society will continue to progress, technology will be, become more advanced, uh, will we'll become clever and clever and be able to sort of technologically get ourselves out of these, these dilemmas. Uh, that's, that's the sort of the magical thinking we're stuck within. And I think the, the limits to growth sort of issue uh, is now becoming evident in uh, works like, you know, Kate Rowless, Donut Economics, and these sort of books are starting to appear where people are saying, well, the, the, growth, um, the growth magical thinking doesn't hold. Uh, and so it's that disconnect between the real world, the planetary world, and our magical economic thinking that's starting to butt up against each other. Mm. And I want to come back, we'll come back to this in solutions, obviously, all of this, but I think particularly that question about governing a whole system and how do you get to a point where you don't have shit governance, to use a technical term. Um, <laughs> but that's a small problem for us to solve in the solution section. But before we get there, Vanessa, I want to come to you and I'm going to come to you on conceit number three, which is this, we can be strong or rich enough to be invulnerable when it comes to climate change. And when I think about this one, I reflect on something my dad said to me once where I said, Dad, a whole bunch of people would have been about 18. Dad, a whole bunch of people are going to get affected by climate change. And he said, yeah, I know. And I said, yeah, including me. And he said, no, not you. But yeah, lots of people are going to be affected by climate change. It's not you. Um, and this is, a, this is a conceit I think a lot of us carry around with us a lot of the time. I'm going to kick, can you kick us off on the, you know, why is this a thing that people believe? It's a weird thing. Where do we see it in action and what's at risk? I think it's very much actually along the lines of, of what Chris was saying. You know, we have this idea of linear progress sort of come out of the process of industrialisation and it's been called the human exemptionalist paradigm. You know, we think that we can do whatever, which is what previous um, speakers have said. But we... We certainly see it. We've done um, some research in communities on adaptation to climate change and, you know, while they're worried about it, most of the time the answer is, well, we'll just build our way out of it. We'll build seawalls. Um, you know, we've had people talk about the effects of bushfires and just saying, you know, it all grows back and, and um, you know, we'll, we'll be fine. So I think there is quite a a romantic sort of idea about our own resilience. Um, and unfortunately, I think we are coming up against that in many ways as, as we experience these things more and more. Um, I guess the other thing is this idea that if we're rich enough, um, you know, we can buy, we'll, we'll have the technologies to, to move out of, of this issue. Um, you know, we've been told that for a very long time and 
really, mm -hmm. if we look at the money that we have now in Australia and what we do with um, being a rich country and the way that we distribute it, um, the challenges governments have had even on take, taking some of that money, the mineral resources rent tax, I'm thinking of particularly in terms of, you know, trying to get some of those riches that we apparently need to transition, um, it's been very difficult. So, you know, when it's understandable in some ways that people want to, you know, be the exception. Um, the research with young people says similar things, that they think everything's going to be dystopian but that they might be okay. It'll be bad for their kids. So it, there is something quite deeply embedded in that, in that, you know, we're, we're aware that it's a problem but there's a barrier there that is maybe protective mm. um, but certainly I, I feel like some of those barriers are being pushed against quite quite hard mm -hmm. and, you know, of course not only in Australia, um, more so in, in other nations that mm. are more vulnerable. Chris, I'm going to come to you here um, because and then I'll open it to the panel, just, you know, others will have comments, but there's something behavioural in this. Yeah, I think... Um, if you look at examples, I was just looking um, recently, class I was teaching the other day, um, this article you've probably seen where um, the billionaires are investing in bunkers and um, buying up real estate in New Zealand. <coughs> Peter Thiel's one of those. Um, and it's this sort of, and you see it with the billionaire space race as well, it's this sort of logic <coughs> that if you've got enough money and power, it can't possibly affect me, the wealthy billionaire. I'm going to get in my spaceship and fly into space or go into my bunker and... Um, yeah, there is this sort of uh, assumption of distancing. And, and of course, the, the other point here is that um, it, it, when we talk about this in the book, it's sort of comforting in some way to think that it's not going to affect you, it's going to affect somebody else, the other. Um, the, the poor people in the developing uh, world, you know, in Bangladesh and Pakistan, the, the floods and the rising seas. And it almost, as we sort of say in the book, it almost becomes a, a spectacle of consumption. You, know, you can watch these images of disasters and floods and fires in other parts of the world and be happy that you're not being um, impacted in the developed world, in your wealthy, um, gated community, whatever it is. So I think there is a sort of, as we talk about in the book, of this idea of hegemony, a part of hegemony is this idea of distinguishing yourself from somebody else um, or something else um, that sort of reinforces your belief in your own invulnerability in some senses. Invulnerability, Greg, I'm going to come to you to close us out on this one because, of course, this yeah. is an issue, a micro issue between people and in yeah. between companies, but it's also a macro issue between countries. Yeah, so I've lived in lots of countries and the thinking is very definitely different in different countries. But my, my um, recurring nightmare, which comes from the United States, is that, you know, they think themselves rich enough, ugly enough, nuclear enough, technologically advanced enough, that we're all right. You know, we can pull up the drawbridge or we can move New, New Orleans inland. And the others over there, well, they're others. They don't matter. Mm. Now, when you then live in South America, for example, it feels very different. They remember what those people are like up north, you know. But you do get this feeling at, at the geopolitical level that there are a number of blocks which will think, as long as we're okay, we're okay. And the others, well, they're the others. That allows them to think that they can keep growing. But I, firstly, I think it's morally reprehensible to think that particular way. But secondly, I think it's, it's, it's destined to failure because as we drive on uh, global warming and climate change, the feedback loops hit everywhere. You know, the fact that there are bushfires in Canada and Alaska you know, and in the tundra is just unimaginable before. 
So these feedback loops are hitting everywhere. So in the end, the penny's got to drop even in some of these other countries that we're all in this together in a big, big way. Mm -hmm. Now, geopolitically, we're not pretty good, at, not very good at doing that, mm -hmm. but we have to find a way to communicate that very, very well. So I'm going to come on that point, use it as a bit of a segue to come into solutions. And we're going to take a slightly different approach to solutions because hopefully there are a lot of them. Um, and I also don't want to force people to go through the same, you know, digging into every single one. So we're going to, we're going to lift it up a little bit and talk about some of the solutions that the panel have um, encountered, suggested in previous conversations and brought into the mix. But please... Everyone, feel free to jump in, riff on other people's solutions, have responses as we go along. So as we, and the, the focus here is that, it, you know, if we acknowledge these as imaginaries, dominant imaginaries, and, uh, and, and we understand that they're flawed, what additional action do we need to consider? What solutions or approaches are missing uh, because of these imaginaries? And what can we do importantly, to prompt societies to identify them and act on them. And I'm actually going to start with you, Kate, because we have had, you know, we've talked a lot about this um, imagination we have about our corporate governance operating in certain ways and giving us a logic that allows us to navigate through these problems, maybe. And um, we've spoken about going from a state of denial in the corporate world to a state of greenwashing and then a question of what is next. So we're staying maybe within that corporate logic. Maybe we're starting to get outside of it. I'm okay. going to throw to you. Thanks for that. And I think, yeah, it's, it's a real trend that we've been seeing um, over the past decade or so, um, more so recently, where you know, many of us will remember uh, for a very long time corporations, sectors of society, parts of the internet, just basically saying, well, climate change isn't happening. I mean, our own government, <laughs> previous government saying that. And obviously that is still happening in parts of society, in some parts of um, uh, corporate life, in some parts of uh, darker parts of the internet. But clearly what we've seen recently is a real shift towards it's just no longer believable that climate change isn't happening. And of course, that's because of some of the feedback loops that Greg was just talking about, the climate impacts. You know, we've all lived through the bushfires and the floods um, or know people that have been very closely impacted by those things. And obviously, we're not the only country. And so it's no longer really accepted in large portions of the world or society that climate change isn't happening. Um, so now what we're starting to see is a shift in corporates going from denying that it's a problem or that they need to act on it or that they need to act on it in, you know, the time frame that science is saying to greenwashing. And so just I'll set up the problem a little bit and then we'll move to solutions. I know I'm going the wrong way with problems fine, and solutions. Um, but, you know, this is not to have a shameless plug, but last year uh, Greenpeace put out a report called Hero to Zero that really looked at um, the, the top ASX companies in Australia and over half of them have committed to net zero emissions. Um, by 2050, uh, which, you know, many of us that look at the climate science know that isn't actually far enough. Um, but, you know, basically saying, we recognize that it's a problem, we're going to do something about it. But if you dig deeper, only 16 of them have actually committed um, to, to reducing their fossil fuel consumption and increasing their consumption of renewables. Now, this was put out last year, and there's probably been some changes, but you get my general sense of it. And so, the challenge that we have as society, as consumers, um, as people within government is trying to make sense of what is greenwashing and what is actual solutions that corporations are taking to solve the climate crisis. And so 
um, I think there's a couple of different ways that we can really manage that because it is well past time that we are holding fossil fuel corporations but any other number of corporations to account for actually taking action and stop trying to push it off onto their shareholders, onto society, onto consumers, into average citizens who don't have the headspace or the time or the power in which to do it. So we're all in this together. And so basically there's, there's a number of things that we can do for solutions and that's very much holding corporations to account to ensure that they, they do have transition plans for their energy consumption, that they, they are actually taking steps to transition their business practices if they're continuing to dig up and burn fossil fuels and you know credit where it's due. We've seen some enormous steps with the AGL um, in the past year. I gave him a little nudge on that as did Mike Cannon Brooks. And so... We're seeing things move in the right direction, but it's very much, we, it requires government policy, it requires consumer education and action, it requires shareholder action, and it requires investors to understand that also that the money is going to be in the solutions of the future, which are renewables, not in building no coal burning power stations. And so I think that, you know, those are the sectors that really do need to pay attention, um, need to hold corporations to account to do better and move beyond greenwashing to the actual solutions, which is, you know, investing in 100% renewable energy, stop um, tearing up um, forests or you know, really important carbon sinks um, because we have the technology and the solutions and we need to have more R&D and investment um, into making those happen. So to your earlier point about using both arms, right, saying mm -hmm. we're at a certain point now and we've got to use all the solutions we've got. Chris, I want to come to you to talk about, you know, we've, we, that's, that's a conversation about how we need to behoove corporate entities to act. But there is also a question here, which is about how do we not make government the problem? How do we bring government back into the fold? Where are you seeing um, specks of light there? What are some of the pathways we need to push down more actively? Yeah, because we basically got to reinvent our politics because our politics is corrupted fairly fundamentally. And when I tweet those sort of comments, I get feedback saying, oh, our politics isn't corrupt, you know. Uh, they take a, a fairly sort of legalistic definition of corruption, I guess. But if we think about the way in which the fossil fuel lobby, for instance, shape um, government decisions around coal and gas extraction, I mean, Australia is close to or is the largest export of coal and gas in the world. Um, even our current new government, um, there's no movement really on attacking the export part of the equation. Um, there's some moves crab walking towards decarbonising domestic emissions, um, but we're not going to prevent new coal and gas extraction from being expanded. So the, what's the solution, in vertical? what's the response here that would change that? I think we've got to really get people more active in the politics and getting people to talk about climate change more and um, in the education space, teaching more on climate change, getting people more aware about it, uh, and having conversations about the climate crisis and how late in the day it is and how really important this is to reshape the political discussion. Because at the moment in Australia, I don't think, basically there's bipartisan support for business as usual. Um, there's some tweaking at the edges around domestic emissions, but uh, yeah, so that, that political recalibration has to happen and it's not going to be easy, and it has to happen really from uh, social movements, um, grassroots, uh, protest, school climate strikes, um, community coalitions, having discussions about this issue and trying to change the politics. Uh, it, it's, it's a hellish problem in Australia because we are a petro-state like the US, like China, like Canada, like Saudi Arabia. Uh, like a lot of countries around the world, they're you know, reliant and addicted to fossil energy. But uh, if we're going to meaningfully decarbonise at a global level, 
we've got to start that process of re-imagining uh, our politics. So, Greg, I just want to ask you about this. I'm going to come to you later on about vulnerability, but you mentioned before the comment about R&D and the need to, you know, in previous space races, the need to sacrifice some spending in some places and, and, and to get the right level of focus and ambition in the R&D process. And, of course, when you said that, you're reflecting on government R&D. Part of uh, changing that narrative of, uh, you know, particularly when you're in a petro state, of it, this being a sort of a, a risk that you can't face into, something you just want a lot of business as usual, is the conversation about growth, which Kate has, and I mean solutions, which Kate has highlighted. Um, could you comment a little bit on the need for the presence of government in the solution space specifically? Sure. Relevant very much for us, but yeah. you know, relevant for this question okay. of government. So, so there's a very good report you can get. Um, one's called Net Zero America, and the other one by, by um, Worley and Princeton University, and there's one for Australia. But basically, it talks about from ambition to reality. This is what we have as an amb ambition. This is what we have to do. And what we have to do is shut down coal-fired power stations and on that place put something renewable or it's storage. Anyway, there's a, there's a multitude of solutions. You know, we know what the solutions actually are. Mm. The interesting thing to me is that in prosecuting those solutions, we will actually be GDP positive. We will, you know, in a growth sense, we will be generating a huge amount of wealth. The interesting reaction, however, is that a lot of companies will go bust so equity goes down in certain companies and they will resist like rats in a corner. Mm. So this is where leadership then comes in. The leadership basically comes in. The government has to say, we are going this way. We are transitioning. We will put all the incentives around the transition and we will put disincentives around staying where you are and whether that's a carbon tax or whether it's an impost in some other way. It, requi it requires both. And what I would say about uh, firms, the one thing that we're seeing now is a combination of businesses that are looking to the future and actually trying to generate something in the future, together with equity, new equity like Mike Cannon-Brooks and so on, and the banks, the money is flowing in that direction. It's beginning to drain from some of the old stuff, and we need to accelerate both of those flows. You know, we'll still, we still have a capitalist type system. We're not going to five-year plans a la the Soviet Union. But it's got to have that leadership, and it's leadership of business people as well. The final, final thing I would say on, on this is um, activism is key. You know, having been an activist and having decided not to wear a grey suit and become board members all over the place, but being an activist instead. You know, one of the key things that um, we can do now that we have never been able to do before is forensically look inside firms and then transmit that, whether it be by Twitter or any other place you like. And the example I give to business people, and when I do talk to board members, it's this. When Jukun Gorge mm -hmm. was blown up, within 24 hours, that image was around the world everywhere. Within three months, the top three, including the CEO, had gone. And within another six months, the chair had gone. There were consequences. But that would not have happened had it not been people forensically seeing, this is what's happened. This is wrong, and I'm going to transmit it. And then it set all the activists off everywhere, including shareholder activists. And it's an incredibly important part of remolding our economy and economies, because I think the same thing is, hopefully, it's eventually going to happen in Russia as well. 
but that transmission of information is really, really key. So I'm going to come to you, Vanessa, on activism because, yeah. you know, we, we have in that previous discussions talked about and you've raised this sort of really important role <coughs> of activism and new forms of activism of demonstrating urgency and also changing the set of social norms, to Chris's point. I'd love to get your reflections on activism's role. Yeah, because I think... Yes, we need leadership, but what we've seen is that the leadership needs help from the people to yeah. um, feel empowered or whatever to do something. Um, but I guess I'm... So people have mentioned some other forms of activism, but thinking um, the most prominent things that we've looked at in the book have been the student strikes for climate change and Extinction Rebellion, which, you know, have actually been really challenging activism. Yeah. And I think one of the things that they've tried to get us to do is actually break some of these conceits that we've had in the past and actually force us to have these very uncomfortable um, conversations, you know, having thousands of young kids in the streets with all these amazing signs being like, you know, this is my future and you're ruining it, um, is much um, more powerful than sort of intellectually knowing that climate change is happening now and it's going to get worse in the future. And I think Extinction Rebellion have done something very similar, you know, in terms of disrupting people's everyday lives and, and saying, well, you know, this is a disruption to you now, but you're going to, the, the impacts are going to disrupt you way more than this and you need to actually think about this. Same with the recent sort of... Um, throwing of food on, on paintings and whatnot, you know, think about your values. Um, the painting's going to be worth nothing because of climate change. So I actually think, you know, and I know a lot of the time, you know, the state's reaction, in, we've had new laws in New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, in response to these actions has been really tough. Um, the media's reaction is often, you know, you're terrorists or, you, you know, you're making the cause worse. Well, the research actually says that a lot of the time what these actions do is, is set the agenda. Um, so research coming out of the UK mm. has supported that. So, you know, we need to have those conversations. And I, I also would implore those of us who care about climate change to sort of hesitate when we want to do the you're not helping the cause thing because I think, you know, Sure, some of them are challenging people, but um, if we can sort of just work out whose side we're on and we could always get involved, change what they're doing or, or do something else, take a different tactic, but we need all of these um, things to be happening in order to really start breaking out of these dominant imaginaries and, and thinking in a different way. Mm. It is one of the, I mean, a lot of the conversations we've discussed often get the solutions we've discussed often get drawn back into that huge gravity of, of um, neoliberal logic. And it is interesting, you know, that activism is increasingly pointed and it is increasingly designed, as you say, to kind of try and cut through some of those imaginaries very directly. And Sorry, okay. and I did just think of, I mean, the, the other thing that um, <laughs> activists have been doing, which is kind of ironic as well because, you know, a lot of industry has sort of said, oh, yes, we care about climate change, we'll do something by 2050, so they're sort of delaying it, whereas, um, you know, a lot of the quite effective activism in Australia has also been, well, we're going to actually go and prevent you from opening new mines and, and whatnot, and we're going to delay you. So, you know, it, it can have those 
practical mm. outcomes as well in, mm. in some cases. Absolutely. Yeah. So Dan, I'm going to come back to the difficult, this difficult question of growth because we 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 go down and we go up and we go into the question of the, you know, what are the what what are the tactics and what are the governance mechanisms and then we have to go up into this question of what's our ambition for the whole system and where do we want the whole system to go. There is, you know, there are conversations about you've talked about how difficult getting away from the idea of growth is. There are conversations about targeting different types of growth, so growth and well-being, something that often gets raised. You know, what's your view on some of those alternative pathways? Are they useful? Are they just prolonging the issue? Yeah, no, I think in, in the book we, we take a quite firm stand that we are pro-democracy. Mm. Uh, and I think democracy works in many different levels. Uh, that we also see, for example, that democratic organizations or co-ops or um, where people own part of an organization, they are not as uh, growth dependent as uh, uh, capitalist mm. uh, corporate organizations. So as soon as we have, and they, they, they don't necessarily work as many hours. So having industries uh, supported demo by democracy within the industry. So we can imagine that energy uh, sectors are uh, co-ops uh, where as communities we own our energy, where we focus on sufficiency mm -hmm. rather than growth. Mm -hmm. So how much do we need rather than how much can we dig up or how much can we develop this? So uh, democracy is also fundamentally an empty place of power. And return to activism here as well is that government can be us in that sense, that there is no democracies on one hand empty in that anyone can fill it. On the other hand, it's, at the moment, it's very protective. And we see that how, at the moment, the current form of democracy in Australia is protecting uh, the petrostate in, in trying to jail activists and those who protest against this. But fundamentally, democracy is empty. So in that sense, the power can be filled by people who, who care about these issues. So that's why activism and engaging in politics is so important. And that is the key solution here, engaging in all these activities, politics, alternative forms of organization, to then challenge capitalism and separate capitalism and democracies. Because we grew up in the 70s and 80s assuming that democracy and capitalism was more or less the same thing. Mm. But they're not. They're almost the opposite. Because one is competitive-based, another one is collaborative-based. They will learn to engage with each other, learn to disagree. And I also think this is an amazing exercise for the future, that we start needing on an everyday basis to start engaging and disagreeing with each other and solving problems, deliberate with each other, addressing this issue together. Because these things are going to have an enormous impact upon us. And we're not then used to compromise or having enough, or giving away some of my, my, my valuables to others. If you haven't practiced that, the opposite is, is, is quite mm -hmm. scary. Mm -hmm. So I think in that sense, the book is very firm on its best solution to a lot of these problems is more democracy, more alternative forms of organization where people have a say, have ownership in the, in the agenda. So Greg, I'm gonna to come to you with two questions about solutions. And one is to, the, to this point, which, you know, comes towards an alternative or alternative modes of governance and we've talked about the need for system governance you know we talked about the need for being able to have a conversation about regional growth needs for different countries that is not a punch-up we've talked about the conversation about needing to be able to conversation about certain industries shrinking or about not having as much growth as we anticipated 
and we come again and again in that space to the need for system governance. But you know, new modes of system governance also comes up in resilience. So mm -hmm. when yeah. we were talking about the question of vulnerability and resilience, you were talking about a need to have an understanding that that's a collective project. Yeah. What, what would you reflect on as some of the most interesting points of light on those two fronts, the, the joint resilient front and yeah. also the system governance piece? So system governance first. Um, you know, if you look at, a little bit like I talk about industry associations and, and the danger of them is you get into groupthink. That's exactly the same as two-party politics. You know, a party thinks the same way. You're forced to think the same way. So one of the things we've seen at this last election, of course, is the, you know, independence coming up. Mm. That is going to strike fear into the heart of the two parties, but also it's going to strike a, a cause, an immune response. So if we, the people, can get more of the independence up, that would be useful. Now, we actually don't have that much time, <laughs> but that is one of the enduring processes that we will actually need to do. Mm. Otherwise, you get into groupthink, and if you get into groupthink, you stay where you are. That's what you do when you're in groupthink. You stay where you are. So that's, that's the first one. And the second one, which we can do, and we can do it during the term of this government and the ones following it, funny enough, is about... Uh, building resilience. Now, when, when I think of resilience, it, I'm thinking of social, ecological systems resilience. Mm -hmm. And where, you know, let's face, let's face it, we're just people in the landscape. The landscape was there first, you know. So how do you make sure that um, these particular sociological, ecological systems are functioning in broadly the same way? So people who were farming are still farming, but is it slightly different? People who were in ports are still in ports, but is it slightly different? People who are in floodplains, like we see right now, do we spend the money and move some of those places? The message that sends is really powerful. It's basically saying things have changed so badly and so fast, we actually have to spend a lot of money, and it's Australians' money. It won't be just Joe and Mary and Bill. It will be a lot of money. And that message will be powerful. The same thing we're going to see um, on coastal flooding. So I'm thinking this is in a positive. How do you um, build resilience into that sociological, ecological grouping, roughly in the same area, and keep it thriving, mm. not just surviving? And if you then think of that investment not as a sign of defeat, but a, a sign of we value society inside an ecology, and we need to protect our overall global ecology, you begin to get, I think, in, into a different place. So funny enough, building resilience, investing in resilience, I think is actually a powerful action which could accelerate further action. So I am going to take us into some questions. Thank you. Um, Monica Richter, hi. Many things to say, but I'll keep it very succinct. Um, so. It seems to me that so climate change is more a symptom of the dominator mind rather than the problem. And taking those three imaginaries, you know, we could apply it to the biodiversity crisis that we're facing. We could apply it to our mental health crisis that we're facing. We could apply it to our housing crisis that we're facing. And I guess I'd be really keen to hear what do you think about the sustainable development goals as one way for us to be starting to think about systems thinking and you know intervening 
from a systems point of view to try and address some of those issues collectively. So it's not just climate that we're looking at, but we're trying to address those multiple goals through those three imaginaries. Thanks. Right, Dan, I'm looking at you. Yeah, no, I think uh, it's clear that we need all ammunition we can uh, use. And I think <laughs> UN Sustainable Development Goals are useful. They're simple. They come in numbers. They come in colors. We use them in universities. Uh, you know, all messaging is good in that sense. Some of them is obviously more important than others. And I think that's a key problem with these goals is that they are 20 or so goals and uh, they're all awesome but there's no hierarchy among them in the sense of economic growth and well-being is also one of them. Uh, and it's, it's great that the UN is engaging with this. There's a lot of organizations around the UN who's engaged with this. I think it's awesome. It's entered the debate. So yes, pro-development goals, but they're also problematic in that they don't really uh, question some of the assumptions we are talking about in the th three questions. Uh, so they sort of sit on the surface a bit uh, and not really addressing uh, the problem. That was really great. Thank you, everyone. Um, we've kind of seen this concept of ESG emerge, particularly within the corporate sector. And I was just kind of curious to hear your thoughts in general, if you think ESG is leaning towards being part of the solution or if it's really just another part of the problem, uh, kind of greenwashed in a sense. Shall I start with that? One of my titles is Special Advisor ESG. Uh, <coughs> Sorry, I thought I'd do that. I, I had a title with ESG. Yeah, you do. Um, so so th those three letters um, are just, if you like, in one sense, the, the, the latest formation of a series of thinking which goes back to probably 1960 or thereabouts. But basically, if, if the underlying bit is we want you know, a thriving economy, a thriving society, and a thriving environment, we want all those three at the same time. It's being called triple bottom line and so on. So in a sense, it's a matter of communication. Now, when you can ask a, um, a board of a company, what are you doing on the environment? What are you doing uh, for society? What is your contribution? And what is your governance like? And if we don't like your answers, we will withdraw our funding. It begins to have an effect. I have no doubt that those letters will probably be another three letters a bit later on, um, will come up again. But that same consciousness about we want thriving societies, thriving environments, and we want thriving economies. We want all three without the pressures on the biodiversity, without the pressures on the atmosphere, which are going to feed back in such a negative way if we don't get it right. So I have no problems with the letters. That is obviously the opposite, that these letters are highly problematic in that a lot of these speak in the corporate social responsibility, sustainability came yeah. as an industry response to Rachel Carson's The Silent Spring and saying, look, don't legislate anything. We got these letters and the corporate social responsibilities. You don't have to put any legislation <coughs> in because what's good for society is good for business. So in using that strategically to undermine legislation for yeah. the next 40 years. So in that sense, it's super dangerous that they use yeah. these letters to avoid doing anything. And I mean, our yeah. studies have suggested that corporations can't handle this. So they have these letters, but as soon as it, one of these letters costs more than the other, they stop using these letters. So it's all, no, 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 but then we go back to basics, or it's a downturn, or there's a new CEO or new board members. Yeah. We want to go back to basics and make more money. So these letters in that sense is problematic. 
they can also be useful if language is shifted in society, uh, because when we spoke to around 80 or so sustainability management CEOs in different companies over the last 10 years, all of them are firmly, except for two, I think, <laughs> so 2% are firmly believe in climate change, which also means if they practice using this language, we can then use that to recruit them to uh, alternative ways of look, look, looking at the economy. So in that sense, the letters are useful because it opened up a discourse and discussion. At the, at the moment, they are foremost used to stop legislation. I want to ask a question that was pre-submitted. Um, and I would like to direct this probably to you, Kate, which is, there's a question here, which is, you know, should we give individuals more responsibility or be more explicit in what is expected of them to, this is adapt and withstand to the future impacts of climate change, but there's another question there as well, which is mitigate. And you noted earlier, you know, there's been this interesting one-two step by the corporate sector regarding who holds responsibility for a lot of these things. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Um, you know, I think it depends a little bit on what you mean by responsibility, but as I mentioned before, I mean, I think everyone in this room and out there, uh, there's a saying, you know, people have 10 problems, they don't need an 11th. You know, there are so many people out there that just are, are living paycheck to paycheck, they're working to get by, we're gonna see a 50% increase in energy prices next year. Like, there is a lot <laughs> that people are dealing with. Um, and yes, it is important for those of us that, that can, uh, do take part in important democratic um, systems like voting and voting for people that you think are gonna do the right thing um, for, for your values and what you wanna see. Um, you can use your consumer power, but again, all of that is on an individual level. And given the, the scale of the problem that we're looking at, um, it, is, it is not possible to solve it by individual action alone. We need nationwide action. We need global action. I think everybody probably understands that. And that is you know, also, of course, including, as I've already said, very strong action taken by governments and also by corporations. Now, that's not to say that we want to remove the agency of civil society or individuals to be able to take their own action. And we're actually seeing some amazing, amazing things happen, um, particularly in moments of disruption where people are impacted by climate impacts, where communities are coming together and they are figuring out how can we collectively become more resilient? How can we better adapt? Because, you know, there is no one else that's looking out for us. And we've, we've seen that in some extent here in this very wealthy nation that we live in around some of the flooding and other impacts that we've seen. And so, again, that's not to say that we would want to take away individual agency or the ability of individuals um, to, to have their say, to take part in democratic societies, to vote, to pull together and figure out, you know, how can we collectively do better as a society? But as I've mentioned before, it is not on the individual to solve the climate crisis. There are very large forces and we need everyone and those that hold the power over our decision makers to be making the right decisions and pushing for the transition at the speed and scale in which we need it. Chris. Yeah, just on that, I'm, I'm constantly surprised just in talking to people about they say, what do you do? I study climate change. And they say, well, what can I do about it? And, you know, it's, it's almost like a default position in our society that we confront big issues as an individual response. Mm -hmm. Should I buy the, you know, the electric car or the, the green tuna in the can or whatever it is? You know, it's a, the immediate default is to consumption. But my consumption choice is that's how I'm going to respond to climate change. Um, which, as I was saying earlier, I mean, it's the explicit... Um, uh, expression of that sort of neoliberal ideology that we see everything in terms of our role as citizens is to consume stuff. 
Um, it's not to sort of engage in political discussion or to challenge um, powerful forces in society. And of course, that, as we say in the book, that was deliberately framed by the fossil fuel sector. I mean, it was, I think it was Shell that had that tweet about um, what are you going to do to solve climate change sort of thing. Right? Thanks, Shell. Thanks, you know, that's great. Um, but yeah, it, it is deliberate, it's a deliberate political framing to say that the answer is for every one of us to sort of take a little bit of action and then together collectively, maybe that will result in some systemic change, but it clearly won't. Um, so the, the other part about the, the positive side of the individual action, going to the solutions, is the, the role of, say, the, those activists who individually put their bodies on the line, but collectively um, have a political impact, whether it's you know climbing up a, a coal loader or whatever the hell it is. This is, you yeah. can see the panel's heading in a certain direction here. Um, <laughs> Hello, thank you. Um, thanks for the chat. My name's Mel and I'm a um, transparency and social justice advocate. And I work a lot in transparency around extractive industries and just energy transition uh, through Publish What You Pay Australia. So that's my kind of background. I guess um, one of the things that I would like to raise is a lot of the renewable companies are mining companies or they're oil and gas companies and there's a lot of behaviour and a lot of big, like they're used to building massive infrastructure. So I guess my question is, you know, the role of the existing industry in moving into renewables, your thoughts on that. Mm. But secondly, a lot of the big renew, like the renewable projects are massive infrastructure. Like we're just going from big infrastructure to another big infrastructure. We're not actually really looking at local solutions, innovations, and what can happen at a local level and really thinking outside of we must have a massive solar panel <laughs> farm out there and we've still got, you know, the transmission issues that we have. So, yeah, I'm just really interested in your thoughts around that and the role of the circular economy and resource you know, recovery in this space too. Thank you. So this is an interesting question um, on, on, on a lot of fronts. You know, one of the things that we found recently looking at policy systems that successfully had developed green growth was that some of them had actually managed to co-opt the existing large entities in the system, powers in the existing system, to be part of the solution and that was how they got around it. But there's an interesting, there's an equity question there. There's a, you know, there's a question of the valid position of those dominant entities. Vanessa, I'm actually going to come to you first on this and see if you have got any reflections. Um, yeah, I mean, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because uh, you may, what you made me think of is the Four Corners episode that was a bit earlier in the year where it was about, you know, and the tag was to save the world, we're going to need more mines. And, it, you know, it comes back to it. So they were talking about particular minerals that we're going to need to develop these technologies. And I was sort of thinking as we were going through these conceits, um, I think it was, Monica, you're not, you're not wrong, you know, how they applied to other things. But uh, And we didn't really talk about processes of colonisation as being one of the founding um, events that, it really embedded these conceits um, in our ways of thinking. So, sorry, maybe I'm going a bit off track there, but, you know, thinking about this idea that we just transfer over to these massive systems that we already know have, have failed us in other ways. Like, I think there is some research being done looking at community involvement in, in, in planning and decision-making and coming back to this idea of, you know, we need more democracy in order to... Um, understand this issue like it goes deeper than 
just climate change. Um, we need more community involvement and, and actual say in our planning processes and to really be looking out and, um, you know, raising the flags when we see these kinds of behaviours just repeat themselves. Chris, do you have yeah, a comment? I was just, I was just thinking, as, as you were saying, Vanessa, there, that, I mean, there's, there's so much in the pipeline around renewable energy zones, for instance, in New South Wales and Victoria mm. at the moment, the, the Victorian announcement, I think it was last week, around this massive shift to renewable energy, which is going to involve massive transmission lines and solar arrays and, and wind farms and things. And I think it's going to be a mistake, and I think some in government and industry realise this, if they think they can just ram this through in the conventional sort of top-down sort of model, they have to get the social licence of communities yeah. involved in that. And I know that, you know, local mayors down in Wagga and that sort of area are already sort of raising red flags about the lack of community consultation around um, putting in big solar arrays and what impact that'll have in the pastoral industry. So the sensible way to go would be to be involving those local <coughs> communities uh, at the get-go around decision-making about how are we going to plan this, what is the, the value add to the local community, up where the job's going to be, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, and the problem is that our political parties just seem to think that they can continue down the command and control sort of ram it through sort of approach. The sort of thing we're seeing the announcements about Warragamba Dam and raising that, you know, um, not a whole lot of sort of community consultation around that strike. Mm, there's a, I mean, there is a question that was submitted um, beforehand, which was about whether or not our urgency to respond on mitigation is going to actually, I think the point was, you know, the actual question was, is our urgency to respond and, and our need to adapt actually going to reduce our ability to mitigate? But there is an interesting question about urgency there, which mm -hmm. is when you have really extraordinary urgency and you want to act in your existing systems, does that actually, um, you know, present you with a, a risk of not building new models and not investigating all the options and taking your existing governance system and just ramming it through? I was just wondering, with the you know, climate science, is, uh, I assume some of you could think, um, is that a place where activism has had any place at all? Like, has there been any effective measures that have been able to let all the world leaders in the room that they're thinking about solutions for making decisions? Is there any way for civil society to really try to kind of have an have a impact on that space? So well, good question yeah. from we. They're, they're, they're very, very carefully managed Chris, events, okay. aren't they? I mean, the UN uh, carefully managed corral, <laughs> but it, actually we had this in the book and it struck me when we were drafting this chapter. Um, COP26 in Glasgow last year uh, it was a really interesting insight a journalist made at the time that's the only space where you get the people who are being impacted from developing economies in the same room, face-to-face -face, at the same table with the oil executives the people who are causing it. And that spatial um, directness, I think, is a fascinating sort of insight where people are literally coming from communities that are losing their lives, losing their houses, losing everything, and they're in the same room confronting the people who are causing it. So I think that is a space in those COP-type scenarios that you don't find very often anywhere else. Okay. I just wanted to check, you said COP. I just didn't hear yes. what you said. Yeah, great. I mean, we're Greenpeace, so yes, activism everywhere all the time. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, as, as Greenpeace, we're, we're inside the room, we're outside the room. I think COP, um, similarly, it's a very important space um, because climate change and the conference is in the media, um, back at home, uh, at the location. The, the delegates, the high-level delegates are reading it. 
Uh, I think it is, it, it is also, I mean, if you look at the Pacific Island nations, they hold about a 10% vote at the UN. Um, it is a place where they can actually have an important platform that they need to talk about the impacts in that region of the world, um, obviously other, other impacts on other countries. Um, and so, yes, I think it's very important. And I think activism does play quite a key role, particularly in being able to um, uh, uh, just lift up the voices of those that are being hit first and worst and least responsible for the problem. Um, but it can't just be at spaces like the COP um, uh, back at home, in your community, in the halls of parliament. I think I've been in activities and protests in every single one of those places. So, yeah. As someone whose um, career in climate change began in an activist group which was designed to support Pacific negotiators at COP, I'm really happy to see this, yeah. see this, see this come up and circle around. Um, so we, we, I think we could talk about this for ages, basically, and you've all been very generous in um, continuing to give us your attention and engaging with the conversation. You know, we've been across a bunch of solutions all the way from reinventing our politics. Thank you, Chris, for a very, very um, high-level high uh, demand there on, on our work going forward through to this sort of pointed and connected activism in new forums that we've just been talking about. We've talked about new participants in governance. We've talked about shared resilience. And we also talked about sufficiency. Daniel, which I think was a word that you brought in that I thought was excellent, kind of shift to sufficiency. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to finish with a plug for the book. One of the reasons that we took this broad-ranging discussion approach for this panel was because there's a lot in the book and there was no, no chance that we were going to get across all of it. So if you want to dig into this and continue to engage with some of the more uncomfortable aspects of this conversation uh, and with recasting some of these imaginaries, um, please do, do uh, pick up a copy, get engaged, come and have a conversation. We've got drinks following. And with that, I'm going to let everyone go. 